I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8 and verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude. And there follows the feeding of the 4,000. Our subject is the roots of unbelief. Perhaps I ought to begin with reference to verse 21, which is Christ saying to the disciples, how is it that ye do not understand the roots of unbelief? Well, from the beginning of the chapter, Christ proceeds to Dalmanutha, east of Jordan. There are many Gentiles that live there, as well as Jews. And just very quickly to introduce the subject, he declares his compassion on the multitude. Verse 2, three days they've been listening to him, and whatever they had taken with them to eat was obviously long exhausted. And Christ says, if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way for diverse of them came from far. And there seems to be a sort of minor reenactment of the feeding of the 5,000. Even to the uh, disciples' response, verse 4, his disciples answered him, from whence can a man satisfy these men, such a crowd, 4,000 men, and presumably many more, if you were to include the women and children. How can we feed them here in the wilderness? So it tracks, it follows the event not very long before when Christ had fed 5,000. The disciples don't seem to remember how it was done, the great miracle of creation that Christ worked in providing in a deserted place so much food from nothing. Well, it continues to track the earlier event. And he asked them, how many loaves have ye? And they said seven. The numbers vary, but the events are very similar. Verse 6, and he commanded the people to sit down on the ground. And once again, as with the feeding of the 5,000, you think of the illustration we have here of faith. Because, of course, all those people would not have had any spiritual faith. But in being commanded by the great prophet teacher, as they saw him to be, though no doubt some of them felt he was the promised Messiah, estimated him justly and highly. Nevertheless, when he said, sit down, and prepared to feed them, there must have been astonishment as before. No sign of any carts or camels or donkeys laden with food sufficient to feed thousands. No sign of any provision. And yet he commands them to sit down in an orderly way. And no doubt as earlier, the disciples 
under Christ's direction, form them up in lines so that they can be served? Well, the cynical among them must have sniggered to one another. What's this all about? There's no food. There's nothing around, nothing to be seen. But as the loaves and the fishes were broken and distributed, so they multiplied. But you see the picture that's provided because they obey him, so it's a picture of faith, acquiescence, submission to the command of Christ. If he says, repent and believe, we obey him, and in obeying him, we receive him and embrace him. And they sat on the ground and they were provided for. So it's a reenactment of that earlier miracle, without doubt. And they eat, verse 8, and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets before it had been twelve, which suggests one for each apostle, even the apostles were provided for. But of course, there were far more people, disciples there than just the twelve. So there was quite a crowd of those who were disciples of Christ beside the twelve, and there was provision for them all, including the people who had listened. Well, we learn a number of things, and I'm being very brief about this. We learn a number of things from this reenactment of the 5,000 by the feeding of 4,000. And the first thing is, it teaches us that Christ's power, well, of course, it was due to his divinity. He was God. But Christ's power is resident in him. It is permanent. It is ongoing. He did not just once feed 5,000 he could a short time afterwards do the same thing again. This time the number varies. Why does the number vary? Well, that's pretty obvious, I would think. If it were 5,000 again, then the cynics would all be saying, this is just confusion in the record. This is one claimed event, wrongly and variously reported. So the number varies. And we're quite sure that it's two separate occasions, as the record shows. But the key thing is that what he did once, he could just as easily do twice. Or had it pleased him three times, because it's his work. He is the Lord of glory. He is God. He is not just empowered for the occasion. It's resident in him. And then we see and we, the ongoing lack of understanding of the disciples. What a picture of us. We're taught one lesson of faith. We have a crisis and a difficulty. And we pray. And God hears our prayers and answers from on high. And then shortly afterwards we have another crisis and another test and we're all floundering once again. Just like the disciples, so slow to learn, so slow to remember and recall, blessing after blessing, provision after provision. 
But it's true of them. In so short a time, events completely repeat themselves and they're saying, well, how is so great a crowd to be provided for? And they're at a loss. The roots of unbelief. It's in the heart, friends. It's in the human heart. We are so rationalistic and materialistic. Even after salvation, with a new nature, we're constantly ensnared by our fleshliness. How is this going to be done? How is that going to be done? And faith fails to operate, even though it's been proved before. So we learn from this that faith depends to some extent on recollection. You remember things. You remember blessings. You remember lessons. You commemorate them. You keep them in mind because faith rests on recollection in the Christian life. And a third thing that we see from this, in this case, Gentiles also are blessed. There seems, though it is not the calling of Christ to reach out yet to the Gentiles, we were going through this in our last study, the call of the gospel to the Gentiles awaited till after Calvary, after the resurrection, after the day of Pentecost, and then begins the great Gentile mission. So Christ is able to say he is not called to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the reason for that is fairly clear too, because there was as yet no church. What had to happen is the Jews had to come in first, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 just a few days later, then more and more. And Jews, although in spiritual darkness, so many of them, the majority of them, because nevertheless they've been taught from the scriptures since childhood, they were quick learners. And among the earliest converted Jews, teachers could be raised up. Apostles, of course, and then pastors and teachers, and the church could be formed, the fledgling church. So then there were teachers for the Gentiles. Had the Gentiles of Samaria come in before the crucifixion in large numbers, who would have been their teachers? They were not conversant with scriptures except for their own distorted view of them. So at this stage, the Gentiles are not being called. But nevertheless, more and more, you see in the gospel record, something being done for the Gentiles. So there's the Syrophoenician woman, and immediately after Christ's encounter with her, he comes to Dalmanutha where there were a lot of Jews, uh, Gentiles, and they benefit too. And we can prove this because in Matthew's uh, account of this healing of the 4,000 and so on, in this very passage, we find the people are uh, glorifying the God of Israel. 
a very cumbersome statement if there were not Gentiles present and there wasn't a reason for putting things in that way. So more and more, the olive branch is being held out to the Gentiles for the inclusive church that would be brought about. But look down to verse 10. And straightway, he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. They may have been with him the whole time. Matthew's gospel says the Sadducees are there too. So it's Pharisees and Sadducees. And this is already the third time in the gospel record that they tempt him, asking him a sign from heaven. Altogether, in the record of the gospels, it seems that five times he was challenged in the same way by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We need a sign, and it must be a cosmic sign, a heavenly sign. Some people think that they had in mind, and they probably included this, manna from heaven, as in the time of Moses. You could call that a heavenly sign, because the manna came from heaven, as it were. But equally, it suggests that they expected some movement among planets or stars, some miracle with the moon or the sun or something of that kind. Something really marvellous and spectacular. Seeking of him a sign from heaven. Tempting him. You see, they didn't believe he could give a sign from heaven. So by challenging him in this way, they thought they were exposing his weakness, his inability, his inadequacy, and bringing him down in the estimation of the people. The people thought he was from God because he could do these amazing, compassionate, healing miracles upon thousands, which no one had ever done before, and no one else could do now. They had to take him down, give us a sign from heaven. Or maybe some of them even hoped, and even thought, that he would attempt to bring about a sign from heaven. Perhaps he's getting so big in his own estimation, he will try it, and then he will look foolish, because, of course, he will fail. Perhaps that was in their minds. But one way or another, they sought to bring him down and expose him, because they didn't believe in him. Imagine, friends, the Pharisees and some of the Sadducees would stand in the front row, as it were, And they would see a cripple healed marvelously and life surge into his limbs. And their hearts were so hard and they so hated the message of Christ, repentance and life and forgiveness, that they were determined to believe he accomplished this by some demonic power. 
And he was not who he claimed to be or who he was said to be, the Son of God and the promised Messiah, so hardened in unbelief. So they seek of him a sign from heaven tempting him. It's scornful. It's derisive. Verse 12, and he sighed deeply. He was grieved, the Greek says. Sigh is the suggestion of our translators, and it's reasonable. He sighed deeply in his spirit. Of course he did. Hadn't he given them so many signs? Were not the miracles mighty signs? Was not his teaching a sign? Nobody taught or expounded as he did. Was not his message a sign? Not the message of the scribes and the Pharisees. Work, deserve, carry out to the letter the ceremonies, the sacrifices. God is pleased with such actions. The Pharisees put endless burdens on the people. They believed in the so-called oral law that had developed since the time of the Babylonian captivity, where the Jewish teachers had added all sorts of regulations and details to the laws of Moses, and endless washings and performances. Every time you went out, you had to wash everything because you were considered ceremonially unclean. What matters to the Pharisees was ceremonial cleanliness. What a strange, strange concept. Not real righteousness, not behavior, not battling against sin, but this mysterious ceremonial cleanness or righteousness. All the regulations of the oral law, non-inspired Jewish teachers, and they burdened the people with that. But Christ, wasn't this a sign? Was bringing forgiveness, the removal of sin, and new life, and communion with God. Wasn't his character a sign? The only man there who didn't do it for money. The Sadducees, they were mostly the priests. The high priests were always Sadducees. They were rich, so rich, they did it for money. The Pharisees were fairly rich. The more popular party, they were the Sadducees, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more popular among the people. The Sadducees controlled the temple and the worship. The Pharisees controlled the synagogues. And they sort of tussled for authority and position and esteem. And they believed quite different things. But some things they had in common. That knowing God, well, you couldn't know him. You couldn't know him. You couldn't have a relationship with him. You must just fulfill the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, and he would somehow be pleased with that. And you would be accepted. And by virtue of your Jewish 
nationality too, you would be acceptable to God. They had that in common. Works, religion, externals, how things appeared. Christ called them hypocrites. This very passage in Matthew's Gospel, he uses the word hypocrites. That's a Greek word, friends. I'm sure you know that. We have it in the English language. But hypocrites comes from the Greek word. In the Greek, it means an actor. There you have the sum total of the meaning. Hypocrisy is one who acts apart, one who is a sham, a phony, a pretender. And the scribes and the Pharisees were acting apart. It was all a pretense, their piety. They were adulterers. They were sinful people. They hid that and they pretended to be things they were not and acted apart. But Christ came, genuine, sincere, presented himself as a poor man, never took any reward for his healings and his labours, preached forgiveness of sin, new life, by grace, an act of God will save you. Of course, it will all be clear as time evolves. Christ will die on Calvary and take himself the punishment due to, this, to the, all those who trust in him. Here is Christ. He will give you communion with God so that you walk with him and pray to him and know him and sense you are his, and love him, and you know his tenderness toward you, and his wisdom and his guidance of you. Why, so different. Don't you see, Christ was himself the sign. No wonder he sighed deeply. They want a sign from me. I have given them so many signs, almost every day. And I am the sign, the great sign from heaven. That's what it says in John chapter 6. Give us bread from heaven as Moses did. I am the bread from heaven, he says. Whoever takes of me, I give life to the world. I am the sign. No wonder he was so deeply grieved. They looked at the great sign from God. They addressed him. And they couldn't see it. And they couldn't grasp it. Because they would not. And he left them. And entering into the ship again, departed to the other side, the northwest side of the lake. Verse 14, now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. Now remember, a loaf wasn't that size, 10, 11 inches long, 
Her loaf was very small, a little flat barley cake, more like a large biscuit to our view. But that's all they had, one of them in the vessel. And then Christ said to them, verse 15, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees, Matthew tells us, and of the leaven of Herod. What does that mean? What's the leaven, that is to say the yeast, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod? What does it mean? The yeast of these men. And they come to the extraordinary conclusion that what Christ means is you disciples haven't brought any bread How did they come to that conclusion? Had Christ ever complained? Had he ever complained that the disciples hadn't provided something? Had he not fed 5,000 from just a few barley biscuits and a few fish and 4,000 Miracles of creation is the one who's created food for possibly up to 10,000 people first time and 8,000 people or more the second time. Is such a person likely to be complaining about a lack of a loaf or two in a boat? It doesn't make any sense that they should say, It's because we haven't brought bread. How foolish is their thinking. But just like us. Verse 17, when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand Have ye your heart yet hardened? It's hard-heartedness that makes us so slow to grasp spiritual things. The yeast of the Pharisees must be referring to something about them. It can't be a complaint that we've brought no bread. The yeast of the Pharisees, what could it mean? Well, it wouldn't take long to think it out, would it? Once we're thinking, yeast gets into the mass, into the dough, and it spreads, and it influences the whole, and the loaf rises on baking. It gets everywhere, and it affects it and colors it, The size, the texture, the taste, everything is influenced in the lump by the yeast. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. It's obviously a reference to their teaching. 
And later on, in the Gospel of Matthew, that's explained. So we don't have to think it out. But it's their teaching. Once you start to think like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it affects your whole thinking. It affects the whole loaf, its taste, its texture, its greatly increased size. If you've got the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in you, the outcome will be a completely twisted, distorted understanding of everything. Well, then what is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They had their differences, and I've mentioned some of them. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection or the afterlife. The Pharisees did. So they're very different in that respect. The Sadducees concentrated on the temple worship. As long as you perform that, they believe very strongly in what we call the five books of Moses. In those days it was one book. And pretty well nothing else. Whereas the Pharisees believed too much. They said they believed in the books of Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, but they also believed in the oral record and the oral teaching of the Jews and all its nonsense and accretions. So they were very different, but as I've mentioned, the things they had in common whether they didn't understand about a personal relationship with God and they didn't seek it and they didn't understand that sin could only be forgiven by an act of God as an act of grace. You repent and seek his pardon and give your life to him and he changes you and washes you clean by grace, undeserved, unearned. They didn't understand grace. They were proud people who thought because they carried out the minute ceremonies of the law, then God would be pleased with them and they didn't watch their lives at all. They weren't interested in holiness. In fact, the Sadducees, they had a doctrine of free will by which they said, God is not even interested in your personal life. He takes no notice of your personal life. That's how far they were from having a relationship with the living God. But they had in common these ideas. They weren't interested in holiness. They weren't interested in communion with God. They didn't understand about forgiveness by grace. And because they didn't have those things, their whole way of thinking was wrong. Same in society, same as in a church. Now in the New Testament, we have, or we try to have, of course it can never be perfect, but in obedience to scripture, we try to bring about a regenerate church membership. Before a person joins the church, are they really converted? 
Do they have a testimony of having come to Christ and found him and received forgiveness and new life? Are they really walking after Christ? Or are they just nominal Christians who believe some things but don't live as Christians? That we need to find out. Because if you get in the church the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it will spread throughout the whole church and ultimately ruin it. And you see this in church history. Two centuries ago, say, among Baptist churches in this country, they were all soundly biblical and evangelical. But then, in the latter part of the 19th century, unbelief came in among them. And it was like the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It took over most of the churches. And the denominational Baptist churches in the so-called Baptist Union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is 95% liberal today. The yeast spreads throughout the whole lump and affects the texture and the taste and the composition of it entirely. So Christ said, beware of the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and leaven. Of course, that yeast was also hypocrisy. But in Matthew's Gospel, we're told the explanation is the teaching. Now, our time is rapidly passing, and I want to just come to conclusion with uh, looking at one more thing. Here in verse 17, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Believers must use their minds. Look at these words in verse 80. I could take this verse as a text for an entire sermon. Perceive ye not yet. There are vital words here. Uh, the Greek says, um, do you not use your mind? Literally. You've got to think as Christians. Neither understand. The Greek word translated understand literally means do you not put things together? Put two and two together. Compare and contrast. Have ye your heart yet hardened? Are you not open to the spiritual explanation of the words of Christ? And then in verse 18, and do you not remember? We've already spoken about that. You could make a, a very helpful sermon on those four words. How to counter unbelief and build faith. Perceive. Understand, avoid hardening 
of the heart. Remember what God has done, even for you. Four principles. We haven't time to go through them there, but nestling in the profound words of Christ, there's a meaning in everything that we can see. How could they think that the Lord referred to bread, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? But remember this, above all, Christ is the spectacular sign. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16 and verse 12, then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And I could turn you to John chapter 6 and verses 32 to 35. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And I could read also verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Christ is the spectacular sign. His divinity. Remember his acts, what he did on earth not just his miracles, his atoning death for sinners, his substitutionary death in our place. Remember his perfections, his marvelous nature, his kindness. Remember all that we see. We love to read the Gospels of Christ. Remember his power. The power of Christ on Calvary, even as he suffered and died, with the whole eternity's punishment due to us, the punishment of millions of people that should last forever, concentrated into six hours and heaped upon him, channeled through him. Astonishing. The old preachers used to love to speak about the two mighty rivers from heaven. The great, broad, fast flowing river of God's judgment upon sin. And the even greater, fast flowing river of God's love. How can God be just? and express his justice and punish sin and at the same time show his love 
and forgive millions of people all their sin. How can he do it? The problem of God? Of course, it's not a problem with God. If God has a problem, his mind is so infinite and so great, it's solved in the fraction of an instance. And even that's an insult. It's just solved. But it's a problem to us. The problem of God. How can he be holy and just and forgiving and kind? Two parts of his wonderful nature to be honored and kept. Each one is a river. His justice and his love and the rivers meet at Calvary's cross and they merge the love of God and the justice of God are both satisfied on Calvary's cross where Christ himself God himself suffers his wrath and exercises his infinite pardoning love. Amazing. There, the love and the justice of God, the two torrents meet. The power of Christ, that he could sustain that, that he could bear that, that he could bear away so much sin, felt in his humanity, born by his divinity. Think of the power of his resurrection. Think of the power of your salvation when you were pardoned and changed and made a new man or a new woman. Think of the wisdom he's shown you ever since and the love and the constancy and consistency. The person you love best in this world is an inconsistent person. But the Christ who you love is unchanging and constant and faithful and consistent always. And his patience and his kindness, they are unlimited. Think of Christ. He is the sign and he is joy and peace. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. The joy of Christ is imparted to us and how we feel it at times. Surely we have proved he is himself the sign from heaven. To think like that is to defeat unbelief and to keep it at bay and to honour him every day of your journey.